Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with Judd Legum about corporate America's desire to look forward, not backward, from the January 6th insurrection. And then we're going to speak with, speak with um, Alex Kane about this latest outburst of communal violence in Israel, why it's uh, categorically different than other flare-ups in the conflict that we've seen in recent years. Uh, but first, I just want to acknowledge what a, a banner week in stupidity this week has been. And maybe that's an, an evergreen tweet, if you will. But um, I just I just want to note that right now there is a headline on foxnews.com that reads, and I quote, Chick-fil-A sauce shortage blamed on Joe Biden's America. <laughs> Which is weird because like, aren't we all boycotting Chick-fil-A still? I don't know. Um, the report begins, and I quote, amid the massive fuel shortage in several states as a result of the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack, Chick-fil-A is reportedly facing a short supply of its signature sauce. Um, and following these reports, social media users took to Twitter to express their outrage, not at the restaurant, but at President Joe Biden. Uh, I'm not joking that that's really up on their website. I, I don't think they are either, although, you know, who knows? Um, but that wasn't, shall we say, um, consequential stupidity. That was in, inconsequential. Uh, let's let's talk about more more important stupidity. Um, several states have moved to cut off enhanced unemployment benefits this week and last week based on the premise that they are uh, incentivizing people to stay home rather than work, right? Um, there is a popular storyline that labor shortages are being caused by an extra 300 bucks per week from the federal government. And um, I just want to talk about a little bit about what the actual data show. Uh, in April, 6, 6.9 million Americans entered or returned to the labor force. That was up by a, a half million from the previous month. And the, but the lackluster jobs report, 266,000 net jobs were added um, last week. I think that was a weekly, weekly jobs report. Uh, were the result of, of 4.4 million people moving out of the workforce entirely. And it's important to understand that when you move out of the workforce entirely, you are no longer eligible for unemployment benefits. So we're seeing a mismatch between the claim and the numbers. What we're seeing is people are moving out of the workforce. And why that is, that is, um, it's almost certainly not one thing. It's not one thing. It's going to be multiple things. And one thing that I think we should all keep in mind is that the pandemic is still raging on. I mean, um, it seems like there is a significant segment of our society that has decided that it is over. And I just want to point out that 65% of Americans are not fully vaccinated at this point. Um, <clears throat> and I don't really understand why um, the forecasters were expecting us to add a million jobs, um, which is which is why that jobs report fell short when the when the pandemic is continuing. You know, when people are still wary of going on vacation, people are still wary of, you know, going out to restaurants. Um, there are still capacity limits to a lot of places. So I, I don't really get that. There's also been a bit of panic over inflation. Uh, it was reported this week that consumer prices were up by an annualized rate of 4.2%, which is, I don't know. This caused stocks to fall, and it caused some uh, moderate Democrats in Congress to express concern about the deficit. Uh, it has led to a bunch of stupid punditry. And as uh, the Washington Post, Heather Long explained, it's it's mostly baseless because here's what's happening. A year ago, a year ago, consumer prices fell off the table, basically. It dropped by 
uh, around 2% when the pandemic hit. Now, a year later, we're starting to come out of this. Uh, prices are starting to rise. And we're comparing those prices today with the prices a year ago at this exceptionally low point, right? So you have consumer prices fall off the table. And then we're saying, okay, let's look from that point to this point a year later. So remember that 4.2% that number. Well, it turns out that if you take away the effect of the pandemic-induced dip last spring, you take that, that prices falling off the table dip out of the trend, what you see then is that inflation has grown by a steady 2% between 2019 and today. And that number, by the way, 2% is exactly what the Federal Reserve targets. So that's some, some stupidity that matters. And I, I just going to leave you with a couple of stories, make sure that you caught them. There's uh these are out of <clears throat> state legislatures. The states are of course the laboratory of democracy, so we are told. Um, according to the Detroit News, a Michigan lawmaker who's been at the center of efforts to question the 2020 election introduced a bill this week that would require fact checkers to register with the state. Representative Matt Maddock, a uh Republican state legislature wrote the legislation. Eight other Republicans co-sponsored it. And the Fact Checker Registration Act would require them to register with the state and then take out a $1 million fidelity bond, which uh, could then be claimed by anybody who by an affected person who brought a civil action saying that they had suffered demonstrable harm from a fact checker. And fact checkers who didn't register and take out such a bond could be fined $1,000 per day of violation. These are the same people who claim to have this fealty to the Constitution. right? And it's interesting because the... Um, the freedom of the press, originally, the original meaning of that was that the government couldn't charge any fees for licensing, uh, for licensing publishers, giving, giving publishers license. So it was actually, it meant that the press was cost-free. So here's this guy, just, I don't know, some wacky, wacky stuff. Anyway, uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break and uh, come back with Judd Legum. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. This week, Republicans continued their efforts to move past the January 6th insurrection. Uh, they stripped Representative Liz Cheney of her leadership position for the crime of uh, calling out Trump's culpability. And then, as, uh, as Roll Call reported, and I quote, less than an hour after Republicans ousted Wyoming Rep Liz Cheney, um, House Republicans sought to recast the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol with the rioters now assuming the role of victims. That's so unusual to reverse the offender and victim. And of course, Representative Andrew Clyde, a Republican from Georgia, kind of won the week with this gibberish. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes, taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. And according to my next guest, they are not the only ones looking to move past the insurgency of dunces. Judd Legum writes Popular Information, which you should absolutely check out at popular.info. He has a piece up this week detailing how corporate PACs are trying to have their cake and eat it too by getting credit for standing up for democracy without severing ties necessarily with their corporate benefactors. Judd, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. Um, a lot of us were happy to see corporate PACs appear to take a stand for democracy in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. Can you tell us a little bit what has happened since uh, uh, you, you found this, this presentation by a PAC called the National Association of Business PACs? It's like a lobbying group for federal lobbyists. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievably a trade association for corporate PACs where they get together to discuss uh, how to operate corporate PACs successfully. Um, and what we've seen since January 6th publicly is there has been a huge pullback, um, both in commitments, but also when you look at the FEC data of corporate PACs donating to the 147 Republicans who voted to overturn the election. But I obtained uh, some video and also some documents uh, from this organization that represents corporate PACs. And it really shows them plotting, strategizing, figuring out how they are going to, as soon as possible, resume donating to these Republicans. And the video is, is quite revealing because it shows how they talk about what they, what it, what exactly it is they do, why they give this money to politicians, how they talk about it when they don't think people are listening uh, behind closed doors. And they essentially admit that this is really about access, uh, but they don't want to say that publicly. They want to come up with a better explanation as to why they're going to start giving to these Republicans again for the public. And, and that's part of the discussion that's captured in this webinar that I obtained. So they are giving advice to people who represent these corporate PACs and saying, look, you can't say that you're going to go back. And people should actually check out the piece because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Like they, they recommend that you don't make an open-ended commitment or you don't make a, um, a, a commitment to suspend donations for a specific period of time because reporters can then follow up and say, oh, you said you were going to suspend donations to these politicians for two years, but it's only been a year, whatever. Um, and also to come up with uh, a larger story about why they're resuming um, contributions to these politicians. Yeah, they had brought in um, a Republican operative who also now um, does a lot of crisis communication consulting, a, a guy named Michael Duhame, who's worked for Chris Christie and uh, a number of other prominent Republican politicians. And he's, uh, he's giving this advice. Now, we don't know for certain that all of these corporate PACs are going to take this advice or not. Um, there didn't seem to be much pushback on any of the advice he was he was given, um, but he was giving. In fact, the, the one question uh, that came at the end was, why can't we just give money to politicians because we want access to them? Why isn't that good enough? You know, it was, it was kind of going in the other direction. Um, but I think it, it signals 
that there could be, especially when we see the next quarter, we've seen the first quarter, you know, the first three months of 2021 uh, came in in about, about the middle of uh, April. Uh, in there, we did see uh, corporations, there were, there were some key exceptions, but we did see corporations who were mostly sticking to their pledges. I think when we look at that second quarter, it's going to be interesting to see if there's a big uptick uh, in donations um, to to the group of people who wanted to throw out millions of votes and install Trump for a second term. Yeah. And um, let's broaden the conversation a little bit. Uh, it was almost uh, a month ago exactly that The Washington Post reported, and I quote, more than 100 chief executives and corporate leaders gathered online Saturday to discuss taking new action to combat the controversial state voting bills being considered across the country, including one recently signed into law in Georgia. Um, this has been, you know, airlines, retailers, manufacturers, they have all said that they are going to oppose these bills being floated. There's hundreds of bills. Now, nothing was finalized in that meeting, but the report itself, along with statements by companies like Delta Airlines and others, um, decrying these new voter suppression efforts have led to a really significant uh, backlash from the right. Uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz promised to swear off corporate money, writing in the Wall Street Journal that, uh, and I quote, your, your, your woke money is no good here. And in various red states, legislators, legislators are um, pushing back. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, Ted Cruz, this was hardly a profiling courage, because if you look at the first quarter filings, he got a grand total of one corporate PAC donation. I mean, corporate PACs don't want anything to do with them because he was leading uh, this charge to object to the certification of the Electoral College. So after he only got one donation from a corporate PAC, he puts together this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying he's not going to take their money anymore. Well, no one was giving it anyway, uh, Senator Cruz. So uh, congratulations. But I think it is interesting how this dynamic is playing out with voting rights, because this really is an extension from January 6th. It's the same lies that really motivated that attack on the Capitol that are now motivating these laws. Uh, you did see some corporations who came out with very strong statements in Georgia, but they only did so after the bill was signed into law. Uh, since then, you've had a bill signed into law in Florida. You've had a bill uh, or, you know, it, there were a bunch of bills in Arizona, but some of those bills did pass in Arizona as well. Uh, the real center of the action as we speak today is Texas. And we have had some corporations either calling out legislation specifically by name or kind of making statements that are relatively clear where they stand, opposing those bills before um, they passed, which, which to me is more significant. Yes. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We're going to find out in the next two weeks or so uh, what's going to happen uh, in, in Texas. But there's a push and pull against these corporations. In Texas, you had members of the Republican Party introduce legislation saying that corporations that spoke out against what they term as election integrity bills, which I might say were voter suppression bills, but they call them election integrity bills. Any corporation that does so would be ineligible for uh, different kinds of grant funding and other funding that's available from the state, different incentives. Uh, now, that legislation ultimately didn't pass, but it was meant to send, it was an amendment to the budget, but it was meant to send a signal. In Georgia, you had something similar where the House actually passed uh, an amendment. The Senate didn't take it up, but the House passed it that would have revoked a tax credit from Delta in retaliation from for Delta speaking out against the legislation that was passed there, the voter suppression legislation that was passed there. So you have on the one hand, you have some action and some, some proactive... Um, involvement, trying to improve or defeat these bills and, and corporations speaking out. But there is a poll on the other side where Republicans are really using, um, in some respects, mob style tactics, not in the form of violence, but in the form of retaliation um, if, they, if they go through with this. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how it plays out. Yeah, it is. I, you know, I don't 
Ted Cruz isn't the only one who's saying that, you know, we're going to reject woke corporations. There seems to be a uh, a popular talking point on the right right now about so-called woke corporations. And and I I have to say, I find it all a little disingenuous. I don't believe that there is any kind of movement on the right to um, distance themselves from corporate donors, regardless of how, quote, woke they are or not. But I think we should step back here a little bit. this all kind of speaks to a larger issue, which is uh, disclosure. It used to be uh, used to be a bipartisan value, disclosing campaign contributions and uh, lobbying efforts and the like. Um, Mitch McConnell, of all people, he used to be a strong advocate of disclosure laws, and he would said that that was a an alternative to campaign finance regulation. Right, so you just you have everybody say who they're donating to, and then you don't have to regulate those donations because it's all. It's all out there. Everybody can see who's sponsoring whom. Um, that has obviously changed. And the issue that used to be that corporations and trade associations, they wanted to support politicians who would give them what they needed, tax cuts, uh, regulatory breaks, whatever. But they didn't want to be saddled with their positions on like hot button social issues. So they wanted to support like politicians who would you know, give them a, give them their tax cuts, but they didn't want to be associated with their, let's say, hostility toward gay people or towards Muslims or whatever group. I mean, that was the common problem. So now you're seeing the kind of the same dynamic. They want to support politicians on the right, but they don't want to be associated with their attempts to undermine democracy or or be seen as uh, helping them undermine democracy. Uh, you wrote a piece this week titled Shareholders Push to End Secret Political Spending, which I think is kind of relevant to this whole larger conversation. Uh, what is going on on that front? I know this has been uh, kind of a shareholder activism thing for a very long time. Are, are we seeing movement? We're starting to see some movement. Uh, you know, this is something that's that's important to me. Uh, I've done a lot of reporting on these corporate PAC donations. That's what we've been talking about thus far. But really, that's only a slice of what's going on if you're looking at corporate political spending. It's capped at $5,000 per election. So if I do want to go and give the Ted Cruz before he swore off this woke money, um, I can only give $5,000 per election, You know, maybe $10,000 per cycle, $5,000 for the primary, $5,000 for the general. At the same time, I can give a million dollars or $2 million to uh, the Chamber of Commerce who is using that money to oppose a $15 minimum wage, oppose uh, federal voting rights uh, protection uh, protections, doing all sorts of things. And, and that's a far more significant uh, amount of money. But that amount of money is totally secret in most cases. A, a handful of corporations do voluntarily disclose how much money they give to trade associations and nonprofits, but most don't. Some corporations will tell you that they are a member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They won't say how much they donate. Others won't give you any information at all. You know, and it's not just the Chamber of Commerce. It's this whole network of trade associations, nonprofits, uh, direct spending by the corporation themselves, this whole uh, kind of Pandora's box that was really opened by uh, the Citizens United decision that gave far more leeway for these kind of organizations to get directly involved in politics. So there is uh, a movement among shareholders, and they've been doing this for some time, to introduce resolutions um, that ask the company, demand that the company produce a report detailing what these contributions are. Um, And Uh, You know, a few of them have been uh, successful. They're almost always opposed by the corporations themselves. Right. Um, But, you know, if that can get more and more support, you can start you could start to see corporations um, disclose that because, you know, if more than 50 percent of your shareholders are asking something and you're on the board of directors and you keep on saying you you don't do it, you know, these aren't binding. But if more than 50 percent of the shareholders say they want you to do something and then you don't do it. Uh, well, these shareholders could also vote you out as the, as the board of directors. So you kind of have to pay attention if you see that it's gaining support among the shareholders. So, um, you know, I think it's a I think it's a it has a lot of potential because if we knew um, how these corporations were spending the money, there could be public pressure, just like there was public pressure 
to divest from the 147 Republicans who, who voted to object to the Electoral College certification. And there are some big shareholder votes coming up at the end of this month. Uh, Judd Lagerman, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was this was fun. Folks, check out Judd's stuff at Popular Information. It is at popular.info. Stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back with Alex Kane. back. I'm joined now by Alex Kane. Alex used to be a colleague of mine years ago. He's now a contributor to 972 Magazine and Jewish Currents, and uh, he's an insightful observer of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. I have to say it's been a, a very disturbing week, one marked by a level of intercommunal violence that we haven't seen uh I don't know, in a generation or two in uh, not only the occupied territories, Gaza, but within Israel proper, um, there are literal pogroms going on. I don't know how to describe it any other way. Uh, This is often a difficult issue to talk about because everyone wants to date the beginning of the conflict or the beginning of some flare up to some point that works best for their position. I do want to try to sort out what sparked this latest, this latest spasm of violence. Alex, the Israeli Foreign Affairs Ministry issued a statement the other day claiming that, and I will quote, regrettably, the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian terror groups are presenting a real estate dispute between private parties as a nationalistic cause in order to incite violence in Jerusalem. They are, of course, describing um, the events in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, which uh, is is occupied territory according to international law and according to uh, the EU and uh, other bodies. Your response to the claim that this is simply a private real estate dispute? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, it is not a private real estate dispute. The attempted evictions in Sheikh Jarrah are in microcosm an encapsulation of the entire issue with Israel-Palestine. And um, let me place some context around what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah and um, where to understand how this all started. Because I think you're right. We could go back to 1948. We could go back to 1929, et cetera. But that probably, I mean, it, 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 it will help in the grand scheme of things, and we can get into that if we want, but the, the recent things are, are, I think, the most important. And so let's start with Ramadan, right? The Islamic holy month started about a month ago. We're now, today, we're sort of ending its Eid, the end of Ramadan. But, but you know, Ramadan a, is a special time. It's a special time for Jerusalem, for Jerusalem's uh, Palestinian population, most of them who are Muslim. And what Palestinians in Jerusalem, particularly young people, like to do at night is gather at Damascus Gate, which is a plaza that leads into Jerusalem's historic old city. For some reason, the Israeli police decided to block off 
Damascus Gate. Um, and I think it's as a way of, of essentially showing Palestinians that this is not your city. We control every single inch of it. And so that sparked Palestinian uh, uh, protests with um, uh, at Damascus Gate and around the old city. Uh, sort of simultaneously, um, some young Palestinians uploaded to TikTok a video of them harassing um, um, religious Jews on the light rail. Um, and that uh, led to um, uh, far-right Jewish mobs coming into Jerusalem uh, and walking the streets hunting for Palestinians. So that was sort of about a month ago or three weeks ago. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, um, Israeli settlers are um, basically preparing to kick out four Palestinian families from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, which is um, uh, pretty close to the old city, and to take it over. These families have been living there since the 1950s. Um, the, the families themselves are refugees from um, within Israel, because when Israel was established in 1948, uh, Zionist forces expelled about 750,000 Palestinians. So they are about to be made refugees again today in this year. The Israeli Supreme Court postponed a decision on the, on the eviction um, last week, certainly as a way of tamping down tensions. Then uh, Palestinian factions in Gaza got involved, seen trying to cast themselves as a defender of Jerusalem and firing rockets at Israel. So, but and and, and let me just go back to the before I before I go on the the, the private real estate dispute. The the, uh, the Israeli settlers can only do what they do with the backing of the state. It is going to be the Israeli authorities that come to Sheikh Jarrah and force the Palestinian families out and give over the keys to the Israeli settlers. That so that's not a private uh, real estate dispute. And of course, the settlers are relying on a law that allows Jewish owners of, um, of, of land to reclaim property that they had lost while denying that same right to Palestinians who lost property in 1948. They cannot reclaim uh, that property. So that's another example of the deeply unequal apartheid system that exists in Israel-Palestine. What a mess. And I should just point out that um, all of this is happening right at a moment where you have the Israeli far right, certainly, and all of all of Israel, but the, the far right enthusiastically celebrating Jerusalem Day, the day that they took over Jerusalem in the 1967 war. And um, on Saturday, um, the Palestinians will lament Nakba Day, the day that um, the day after the end of the British mandate for Palestine, the creation of the state of Israel, a time when uh, hundreds, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs lost their homes. Um, so that is the kind of the background for all of this. Uh, there was, so we have this effort to expel Palestinians who've lived in Sheikh Jarrah since 1956, basically, then we see images of worshippers being attacked in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. What led to that, and to what degree did those images bring on this kind of orgy of violence? Yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the Israeli authorities say that Palestinians were stockpiling rocks to throw at them, um, to throw at Israelis and at, at, at the Israeli authorities. Um, I have no doubt that Palestinians were stockpiling rocks. They would see it as a way to defend themselves from... Uh, Israeli attacks. So the Israeli police um, said that they had to invade Al-Aqsa Mosque um, during Ramadan, the Islamic holy month, to stop this, even though there was no um, active um, violence at the moment that they invaded. There was there was nothing, there was no single precipitating event, you know, that placed people in danger or, or anything like that. But there were tens of thousands of worshippers at Al-Aqsa Al, Al Mosque, uh, for Ramadan uh, prayers, particularly on Laylat al-Qadr, um, which is um, the holiest month, sorry, the holiest day during Ramadan when when um, thousands of people were praying at Al-Aqsa. But and 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 so when the Israeli uh, border police invaded Al-Aqsa Mosque, though, the, and shooting tear gas and rubber bullets and stun grenades at Palestinians, injuring hundreds of people, those images, of course, were broadcast around the world and also you know, within Palestine. And in Gaza, 
um, which has been under Israeli blockade since 2007, where it's extremely grim, extremely difficult to live there for for the two million Palestinians there. Um, Hamas, um, which for, for, I think for its own sort of political reasons and in a cynical way, they wanted to cast themselves as defenders of Jerusalem as a way to embarrass their political rivals, Fatah, um, which is run by Mahmoud Abbas, dominant in the West Bank. And there's a bitter Palestinian split. And that context is key to understanding why Hamas would want to sort of upstage uh, Fatah um, as the defenders of Palestinians and the defenders of Jerusalem. Um, and, and other important context is that Abbas had canceled elections on the on the sort of pretext that Israel wouldn't allow Palestinians to vote in East Jerusalem. Um, but the real reason was he was worried about gains made lose. by his, yeah, he was going to lose. Yeah. So he canceled. And so, so basically the, the images of Al-Aqsa um, fueled a desire within Hamas to um, uh, show that they can defend Palestinians. And they fired a, a number of rockets um, at Jerusalem um, which surprised, I think, a lot of people in the Israeli security establishment, and that sparked um, Israel's airstrikes on Gaza, uh, which are ongoing right now. I mean, I, I want to stress that point. There was a calculation within the Israeli defense uh, community that Hamas was going to be wary of striking Jerusalem, right, despite the provocation, and that caught people off guard and has apparently led to a um, what seems by all all accounts to be a, a disproportionate uh, reaction. I should add that um, uh, Bibi Netanyahu gave a, a press conference just today, so we're recording this on Thursday. He said that they he is um, deploying military forces that usually patrol the country's borders into Israeli towns. Um, <clears throat> this was in Hebrew. I didn't, I didn't see the, the statement himself, but uh, ACLU's Jamil Dakwar described it, and I quote, as a clear order to use as much force as possible to restore law and order. And he said security forces shouldn't worry about investigations or commissions of inquiry. How does the fact that this violence is spiraling out of control within Israel proper change the story and, and, and change how various actors are reacting to it. Because we've seen this kind of like strategic tit for tat um, between Hamas in Gaza and Israel going back 10 years and more where they will, you know, have these standoffs, they fire missiles back and forth, and then there's concessions made and there's quiet, and then there's a period of time, and then it all flares up again. This is this is categorically different, right? Yes, um, this is absolutely unprecedented. Um, just so your listeners realize, last night there were multiple attempted lynchings by Israeli Jewish mobs on Palestinians, and there were also attempted lynchings of Israeli Jews by Palestinian mobs. So this is inter- within, within Israel yes. proper. These are citizens. Yes. Both, both camps are citizens of Israel, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. This is within Israel proper. Um, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel and Israeli Jews le- live quite, you know, segregated lives in, in a lot of respects, but there are cities which, which while segregated within or sort of they live different lives, there are spaces within those cities where, you know, people see each other um, at, you know, and, and, and sort of, you know, intermingle. Um, but of the, the sort of the under the underlying grievance of is that many for many Palestinian citizens of Israel, they see Israel as a discriminatory state, even though they're citizens um, of, of the state that they don't have equal access to land don't have equal access to jobs, don't, are not integrated uh, into the uh, state that they live in. So that's the sort of backdrop. And there's a lot of other contexts that we can get into, rising crime rates within Palestinian communities within Israel and leading to demands actually for more and more effective police within Palestinian cities because basically their complaint is that the cities have been turned over to gangs um, armed gangs that, you know, run drugs and, and commit crime with impunity and the police don't care because they're in Palestinian cities. Um, 
So this is the sort of context for what happened last night. Of and of course, the the, the sort of more immediate context was the images the the of Israelis Jew, Israeli Jews being killed, including children, by rockets fired by Palestinian factions, um, leading to you know roving mobs of people on various city streets to hunt for Palestinian citizens and to beat them up. Um, there was a harrowing clip that I saw last night of a mob trying to break into a home in Haifa, which is often touted as a city of coexistence, but you had a mob uh, trying to break into the home and do, do, do God knows what to the, to the family that was living there. And they, they thankfully um, fought them off. But this is literal, literal hand-to-hand combat um, on the streets. And, and yeah, it, it, we, we haven't seen this before. I mean, we've seen glimmers of it. In 2009, during Israel's Operation Cast Lead, Israeli leftists, Israeli Jewish leftists um, staged some demonstrations against Israel's 22-day assault, an assault that Amnesty International called 22 days of death and destruction, which, which were really awful to see. Um, Israeli Jews staged some protests against this, small protests, but but protests, and they were, were beaten by, by people who supported the Israeli military. And of course, the supporters of the Israeli military are the majority within Israel. Um, but but the, the, the what we're seeing now with Netanyahu having to resort to deploying the military within um, um, towns and cities within Israel is t- absolutely unprecedented. And, um, you know, uh, you know, it's really a worrying sign um, for, you know, who, who knows where this will, this will lead. But the, 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 the fundamental reality driving this is an unequal system um, um, which privileges Israeli Jews at the expense of Palestinians, no matter if they're citizens of the state or if they're in Gaza or if they're in the West Bank or Jerusalem, Israel has divided them. But the, the, the fundamental reality is that if you're a Palestinian, you are you don't have equal rights uh, uh, in the eyes of the Israeli state. Yeah. <clears throat> this is all happening against a backdrop of political discord on both sides. Um, Netanyahu has failed to form a government uh, over the course of four elections in a two or three year span, right? Um, usually when the violence spikes Israel's internal politics kind of quiets down. Uh, the opposition rallies rallies around the flag, or is um, cowed into submission, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, that's not happening now. Uh, Bibi is taking a lot of heat. Was this a to the degree that the actions of the Israeli government inflamed an already tense situation in the midst of Ramadan? Was there a miscalculation here or or was there not a calculation here? Your thoughts? A miscalculation on the part of the Israeli political class or Netanyahu or yeah, a miscalculation? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't – it's a really tough question to answer. Um, you know, there, there – I mean, but but what what I will say is it's tough – it's tough not – it's tough to imagine – it's tough to – and let me let me rephrase that. It's it, it's not crazy to think that Netanyahu is sitting in his residence in Jerusalem, thinking that this may be his last shot at torpedoing his opposition's attempts to oust him. They now have the best attempt in years to oust him, and they're still saying that that they that they plan on ousting him um, once the fighting. Uh, uh, is over, uh, or if they if they have to, if the fighting continues for the next couple of weeks, they may have to cobble together a governing coalition amidst the war. Uh, but Netanyahu, so one, so one, and one of the reasons why Netanyahu th- may think that this assault on Gaza may may torpedo his opposition's chances is that his opposition has to rely on the support of Palestinian political parties. Um, within Israel, um, right, uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, their political parties, um, for for support in order for them to cobble together a coalition, because there isn't enough without there aren't enough seats in the Knesset without them to get a governing coalition, and so um, you have the Palestinian political parties, um, most notably Mansour Abbas, who's the head of 
an Islamist party within Israel um, wanting to work with Bibi's opponents um, um, and bring down Netanyahu uh, in exchange for increased investment in Palestinian communities within Israel and um, more attention to the issues that his constituents um, are concerned about. And um, so, you know, Netanyahu sees the assault on Gaza basically fueling intercommunal tensions and, um, you know, is trying essentially to force his um, Israeli Jewish opponents in the political class, most notably Naftali Bennett, who is on the right but is wants to be prime minister uh, uh, and depose Netanyahu and is now working with Yair Lapid to do so, thinks that fueling tensions will lead Bennett to abandon it because his far-right base won't accept partnership with a Arab-Israeli-slash-Palestinian politician. And I'm using those terms sort of interchangeably. Some people you know, consider themselves Israeli-Arab. Some people consider themselves Israeli-Palestinians. Some people say they're Palestinian citizens of Israel, but these are all you know, non-Jewish, Arabic-speaking citizens of the state of Israel. Right, right. <clears throat> Peter Beinart wrote a piece for the New York Times. He um, is basically calling for a right to a right of return for the Palestinians. Uh, this seems like a bit of a sea change itself. I, I feel like there has been uh, a change in the way that Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict is is debated in this country, really dating back to maybe 2014. Um, somewhere in the last 10 years of uh, repeated conflicts with, with Hamas and Gaza, these bloody, bloody flare-ups that don't change anything. Um, so that you have that on the one hand, I think more, more of a clear description of what's going on. Um, it certainly takes less courage than it did years ago to uh, forcefully condemn Israeli abuses or stand up for Palestinian rights. Then on the other hand, you have um, Joe Biden, the Biden administration, affirming Israel's right to self-defense. Um, how do you see the kind of um, the debate here in the United States changing, if at all? Yeah, um, I, I absolutely agree with you that that the debate has changed. Um, you know, Peter Beinart's a great example, you know, uh, he was sort of a you know wonderkind of the democratic establishment. Uh, you know, the editor of the New Republic, a supporter of the Iraq War, very you know centrist liberal, and began to write about Israel in 2010, but from a liberal Zionist perspective. Basically, you know, he believed he believed in the need for an exclusivist Jewish state, but within the context of a two-state solution where there would be a Palestinian state as a way to basically save Israel um, from, from itself um, and to allow the Palestinians uh, independence and, and, and self-determination. Ten years later, the chances for a Palestinian state don't seem any closer. Um, and Beinart, um, who is deeply involved in American Jewish communal life, um, has shifted his views. Um, I think he still considers himself a cultural Zionist, but, um, you know, believes that there should be one that the two state, the Palestinian state is not coming into being and, and there should be sort of one uh, state um, with equal rights for all. Um, and so, you know, there, there isn't necessarily that equivalent within the democratic party in terms of the, the, the folks in, in Washington, but there, the, those views are becoming sort of more accepted and mainstream. And the, the, the notion that, you know, Palestinians deserve equal rights and that we need to oppose Israeli apartheid and condition U.S. military aid to Israel is becoming um, much more popular amongst Democratic voters and a small group. And I do want to emphasize it's small. It's by no means the majority, but a small group. And, and they're growing of lawmakers who are calling out Israel for its human rights abuses in a much more sustained fashion than we've seen. But as you noted, the Biden administration and Joe Biden, of course, himself, um, is 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 uh, sort of sticking with the democratic line, the democratic establishment line on Israel, which is that you know we believe in a two state solution, uh, we want that to happen. Although the Biden administration sort of smartly says that this is not a priority because um, you know uh, we don't see any prospects for real negotiations right now. Um, but we're still going to arm Israel. We're still going to send three point eight billion dollars a year in aid to Israel with very little 
checks on how that aid can be used and that Israel has a right to defend itself. So, you know, basically you see a, a hardening split within the Democratic Party between progressives who want to stand up for Palestinian rights and against Israel's repressive system that uh, targets Palestinians and um, a democratic establishment that is remains close to Israel advocacy groups like APAC um, and 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 their donors and you know and and have a real sense that Israel should be uh, supported by the United States. Such a such a sticky wicket and a com- complicated. I, you know, I'm always hesitant to, say, hesitant to say it's a complicated situation because I think that is a dodge for certain people who don't want to. Um, who don't want to acknowledge the power differential yeah. here, the fundamental power differential. They say, oh, it's complicated. Both sides are at fault, which is true on some level, right? I mean, both sides have committed violence against civilians and, you know, we're both Jews. We both have uh, sympathy for, um, for, for every, everybody that yeah. is facing rocket attacks and uh, shit like that. But there is, there is this overarching power differential, which, um, you know, make, makes it makes a complex situation a little bit simpler in terms of uh, discerning uh, moral clarity. You know, one, right. one side has uh, all of the all of the real chips other than uh, resistance in various forms. Um, but uh, this is a this is a long conversation. And I think we need to have you come back on and continue it at another time. We are about out of time. Alex, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me and talk to me about this. Thanks for having me. I'd also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, or you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your pod, podcasts. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Would you like to be sad? Would you like me to teach you where you can learn to be sad? But you must practice like I do. Come from